Hi, I'm Rob Meyer. I'm the founding executive editor of Heatmap News, and you are listening to the first episode of Shift Key, a new podcast about climate change and the shift away from fossil fuels from Heatmap. My co-host, Jesse Jenkins, will join us in a second and we'll get on with the show. But first, a word from our sponsor. Elevate your energy strategy with next-generation energy storage solutions from Core Power. From CNI businesses reducing energy costs and targeting peak performance to utility-scale projects that are redefining industry standards, Core Power stacks innovation with reliability and safety. Visit corepower.com, K-O-R-E power.com, to explore Core Power's capability and start a conversation about unlocking your energy potential. Core power. The future of clean energy is here. Clean energy is ready now, but our laws are not. Advanced Energy United is on a mission to achieve 100% clean energy in America. They're working to remove policy roadblocks for businesses that provide all forms of clean energy and transportation solutions. And they're in states across the country and on Capitol Hill to create better opportunities for all. Learn more at advancedenergyunited.org slash heatmap. Hello, I'm Robinson Meyer, the founding executive editor of Heatmap News. And I'm Jesse Jenkins, an energy systems professor and climate policy expert at Princeton University. And you are listening to the first episode of Shift Key a new podcast about climate change and the shift away from fossil fuels from Jesse and me, brought to you by Heatmap News. On today's episode, we are going to talk about the president's decision last month to pause approvals for new export terminals for liquefied natural gas. I think it's been the biggest climate story of the past few weeks. It, as you have already heard, is quite complicated. We're also going to talk about our upshifts and downshifts for the week. So let's get into it. Last month, Jesse, the Biden administration temporarily stopped approving new liquefied natural gas export terminals. They said this was going to allow the Energy Department to study the effects that they would have on the climate, that exporting liquefied natural gas would have on the climate. And it was basically taken kind of immediately as a victory for climate activists. The president said in a statement that during this period, we will take a hard look at the impacts of LNG exports on energy costs, America's energy security, and our environment. This pause on new LNG approvals sees the climate crisis for what it is, the existential threat of our time. You have written about, or you've tweeted about this pause. I have written a little about it. I think it's kind of worth flagging that there is something weird about this whole policy discussion. The announcement is that the president has decided to pause new approvals from the Energy Department of new export terminals for liquefied natural gas. It is not clear like what exactly, what terminals exactly we're talking about, because there are some terminals that are already operating, right? Then there are some that are under construction. Those are already been approved. Those aren't affected by this announcement at all. And then there's like some number of terminals in the pipeline. What's even like at the heart of this discussion? Like what have we actually what what did the president actually do, Jesse? And like what terminals are we actually talking about? Because I think there's tons of numbers floating around about 
the effect that this pause will have or or not have or just like what is the scale of of even the the export infrastructure that we're talking about yeah, so it's important to get our heads around the scale of uh, LNG or liquefied natural gas exports already, which have really surged in just a few years' time. So, you know, to a pretty significant scale. So, already existing export terminals in the U.S. can export about or can consume about 10% of all U.S. natural gas production as of 2023. So that's you know a big chunk. One tenth of all the gas that we produce in the country can be shipped out of these existing export terminals. That's up from zero as recently as 2016. So this is all very recent construction. And already under construction are another set of terminals that have their permits approved, are unaffected by this recent decision by the president. Those would basically double our current export capacity. They would be able to consume about 11% more of 2023 gas production. And then beyond those ones, which already have their financing lined up and are under construction, there's a bunch of additional terminals that have already been approved as well, but haven't quite lined up the financing and long-term offtake or buyer agreements they need to you know, turn a shovel and get started. Those, if all completed, and, and there's no guarantee they would all finish, but if all completed, that would almost be equivalent to total U.S. Uh, current exports again. So another 9% of all U.S. Uh, gas production. So what we're talking about here is the next tranche of terminals that are seeking approval now, but haven't lined up their permits from both the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and the Department of Energy. They are charged by Congress with determining the environmental impact and also whether these terminals are in the public interest. Any exports of natural gas have to be approved as in the public interest. We'll come back to, I think, later to how exactly we think about that term. And so what this pause is doing is basically saying, hey, we've added a ton of terminals very quickly. We've got a lot more in the pipeline coming up soon. And we have yet more terminals asking for approval. Maybe we should pause and rethink whether or not that scale of export is in the public interest. And the biggest terminal that is at sort of the heart of this debate mm-hmm. right now is, I'm going to reveal my lack of Louisiana French <laughs> here, but uh, Calcasu Pass or CP2. Uh, so this is the second and very large expansion of an existing terminal in Louisiana on the Gulf Coast near the Texas border. So this is a a big terminal already exists. The new one would be, I think, the largest yet. It's about a $10 billion project. And it itself, that single facility could consume about 3% of all U.S. gas production today. And so I think that's like a very important point, just to go back to what you were saying earlier, which is there's a set of export terminals already operating. Today, those consume about 10% of U.S. natural gas. We are locked into roughly double that to more than double that without anything related to this decision. Yep. And <laughs> Just, we could even triple it, basically. And we without, could even triple know, it, if, basically, if everything that already has approvals was built, right? And and that's yep. not necessarily likely. Like, projects seem to get approvals. When you talk to energy analysts, they're like, projects get approved here that will never actually get built or never secure the financing. But we could triple it. And so to some degree, like this whole discussion, maybe this is a very poor way to kind of frame it, but we are talking about an increase in in LNG export capacity that is like so far down the road and also so removed in some ways from what's actually concretely going to happen in the economy, like what is already locked in, that... um, in some ways, I think it just gives perspective to the whole conversation because 
we are not talking about whether there's going to be more LNG in 2027. There is the U.S. is going to be exporting a huge amount more, like potentially double the amount of LNG that it's exporting now in 2027 or in 2030. We are talking about like how many additional LNG export terminals on top of that the U.S. builds, which presumably would then be operating for like several decades to come, right? Operating through the 2030s, through the 2040s. This is like a, a question almost about where U.S. LNG export capacity is going to top out and not about will we be exporting more gas in 2027 than we are now because we know that we absolutely will be exporting more gas in 2027. That's really important context for this, because if you hear some of the public debate about it or some of the reaction from, you know, the oil industry or the gas industry or others, you know, they're trying to pin this as if Biden is saying, like, no more LNG, we're not Mm going to do LNG exports, you know, as if it were affecting our current exports or we are going to cancel projects already under construction, you know, that the reality is that's that's not true at all. And I think the way you framed it is good. It's really the question isn't, you know, are we going to be able to secure our allies in Europe, you know, right now during their current effort to, you know, shift away from Russian natural gas? It's not, are we going to be surging exports? We will. It's what do we want the U.S.'s contribution to the global energy supply mix to look like in the 2030s and 2040s when the facilities that are currently being permitted would be online and operating because they're going to operate for at least 20 years if you know they're to, to pay back their investors. At least that's what they want to do if they don't become stranded assets. So I think it's kind of worth backing up here for a second and giving context about just how much has changed in the world of LNG, even in the past uh, decade, right? So less than a decade ago, in 2016 was when the US started exporting liquefied natural gas. And from that moment, from when we started exporting LNG to now, we have gone from obviously having no LNG export industry to having the world's largest LNG export industry, you know, surpassing Australia and Qatar, which were previously the kind of two biggest LNG exporters worldwide. I wonder if you could just talk a second about like, how did we even get to this place where the US is not only exporting liquefied natural gas, but like determining the world's supply of liquefied natural gas and where these export decisions and export approval decisions made by the federal government have an incredibly important role in determining just how much LNG there'll be worldwide. Yeah, it's actually really remarkable. I mean, the whole story of the U.S. gas industry over the last couple of decades has been, you know, as transformative as the story around how cheap, you know, solar PV and batteries have gotten, for example. Um, We, you know, when I started studying energy topics, I first got turned on to these issues as an undergraduate in the mid 2000s, you know, started researching these topics. And the context for LNG at that point was that the U.S.'s supply of natural gas had peaked and was declining. And we were net importers of gas and were discussing permits and approvals for LNG import terminals all around the country, including one proposed for Coos Bay, Oregon, uh, near where I was going to school and at the University of Oregon. Uh, One import terminal was built in Everett outside of Boston. But other than that terminal, what happened instead was we didn't build any of those import terminals. And the ones that had started as import terminals uh, flipped the script and started to become export terminals instead. What changed between you know 2005, 6, and 2016 was the shale gas revolution. Um, 
that was just starting to take off around that time when we were talking about imports, that companies like Mitchell Energy had figured out how to use directional drilling and hydraulic fracturing to unlock all of this natural gas that was stuck in tight pores within shale formations all across the country. That transformed us from a net importer to a net exporter of both natural gas and oil over the course of about a decade. So huge reversal from mm-hmm. you know the time that President Obama was thinking about these you know per- terminals in his administration when we were mostly thinking about imports. By the end of his administration, they were approving the first export terminals that then were built under the Trump administration. And here we are now. And I think it's important because, first of all, this is just like a kind of forgotten chapter of U.S. energy policy, like the 2006 energy bill, which still shapes a ton of energy policy in the U.S., you know, most notably because it revamped how fuel mileage standards worked. But a whole idea, a whole animating idea behind that law was that the U.S. was about to run out of natural gas, which it had had for, you know, in kind of limitless supply for decades before that. And we had to figure out what we were going to do about that. But then I think at the same time, there's this other point that kind of comes out of that, too, which is that in this announcement that's going to pause terminal export terminal approvals. Secretary of Energy Jennifer Granholm said that, you know, the last uh, approval, the, the last study of what how LNG affects the climate, of how U.S. LNG exports specifically affect the climate was conducted in 2018. And 2018 is like five years ago now, I guess six years ago now, which is, which is long enough that it's like, okay, it does make sense to go back and study that. But if you think about it being conducted in 2018 and the industry had only really started in 2016, I think it does actually reveal just how outdated that study may be and just how like, you know, much has changed in such a short period of time. Yeah. It's almost like maybe we want to pause and take stock of how fast this is moving and and think about where we wanted to go from here. I think that's maybe one of the most compelling arguments to take stock of what's happened, because this has been a very rapid change in the U.S.'s role in the global energy supply mix, uh, in you know the sort of geopolitical implications of that, in the implications for the American economy, both you know on the supply side, you know the the role of gas producers and shippers and how you know, the revenues that that brings in, but also just as importantly, the impact on U.S. natural gas prices and the impact on consumers and industries that depend on natural gas here, which have also been, you know, all of a sudden dramatically affected by um, global markets now because we're tied to in a much bigger way to the impacts of, of global demand for LNG uh, here in the U.S. Before we move on and talk about kind of what this means broadly, I, I want to just bring up another facet of this discussion and another facet of this debate. I think the Biden administration decision, one subtext of all the news about it is that it caught activists a little bit by surprise. Like activists, climate activists had begun campaigning around the LNG export terminal issue and they had begun lobbying Biden to do it. But he did it very, I think, earlier than they expected. And he did it before there was full mobilization around this idea. And that's quite interesting. I think it's interesting because it reveals like how the Biden administration is thinking about this, thinking about its relationship with activists. I think it's interesting because it reveals like how eager and I've written this, but how eager the administration is to cater to climate activists and and to cater to what it sees as interests that particularly motivate young voters. But it also means that like some ideas around that activists used have just 
never went through a cycle of like getting talked about or covered. And so I just want to talk briefly about this idea that I think activists have particularly focused on uh, in campaigning against these terminals. And this is this idea of leakage. The claim that activists have made and the claim that the left-aligned climate movement has made is that liquefied natural gas is not only bad for the climate, it's actually worse for the climate than coal. And when energy experts tend to think about natural gas, they're like, well, it's bad if it replaces renewables, but it's good if it replaces coal. And the claim that the climate movement has made is basically like, no, 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 it's actually worse than coal. There's been a lot of citations of this one study by Robert Howarth, who is a professor at Cornell. The study has not been peer reviewed, to my knowledge. It has also not been published in a major scientific journal or in a scientific journal. Uh, In fact, the version, if you kind of find it online, is basically a PDF. What he claims in the study, which I should say, this is not what the conventional take on LNG has been is that if you count up all the leakage, all the places across the natural gas system, the pipelines, the storage containers, the tankers, um, if you count all the places where methane leaks out of the system, then natural gas, and especially liquefied natural gas, is worse than coal. It's like 30% worse. And if you move LNG across the ocean on like particularly old tankers that are very leaky, then natural gas is not only like 30% worse than coal, it's like three times worse than coal for the climate. And this set of claims about leakage, it's kind of interesting because the I would say, first of all, it's a very hard set of claims to reconcile with what the conventional (laughs) energy accounting is on leakage. But number two, Bill McKibben wrote about it for The New Yorker. It's kind of permeated the discourse without, I think, a lot of interrogation of whether it is true per se. And that isn't to say that it has to be true for the Biden administration to have made the correct decision here. But it is like an extremely important piece of the messaging and the rhetoric around this decision that has not really been interrogated at all yet. Yeah, and there is a wider range of literature on this, which uh, Howarth has contributed to over the years uh, in peer-reviewed journals, but is not, of course, the only one looking at this question. And, you know, the sort of wider range of literature shows a, a bit of a different picture. I think, you know, I, I took a look at the working paper um, from from Howarth. Um, it, it, if there are, you know, there is a a story you can tell if you add it up in a certain way that there are some shipments of LNG that have very high leakage rates that could be on par with or worse than coal-fired power that it might displace on the other end. But it is contained to certain circumstances, like you mentioned the really old uh, tankers. They don't capture the uh, gas that boils off as liquefied natural gas is shipped and gets hot enough to start to evaporate, turn back into a gas. Um we should probably mention to keep uh, LNG liquid, you have to cool it to minus several hundred degrees in order to keep it in a liquid state and make it dense enough to ship on these tankers. And so that takes a lot of energy, um, but it also means that some of it boils off effectively as it gets above that um, that liquefied point uh, as it ships. Older tankers will vent that to the atmosphere as methane, and methane is a very potent greenhouse gas, particularly on short time horizons. It doesn't live in the atmosphere as long as CO2 um, because it's photodegraded in the atmosphere uh, by, by sunlight and, and breaks down into its constituent parts over time. And so the, the potency of methane relative to CO2 really depends on what time period you're looking at. And so in the scientific literature, there's sort of two shorthands for this that are commonly used. One is the global warming potential over a 20-year period, and the other is a gl- the global warming potential over a 100-year period, or GWP20 and GWP100. 
And basically what all that does is tries to integrate the total warming impact that methane emissions or other non-CO2 greenhouse gases have over that time period and then compare it to the amount of impact that a ton of CO2 would have. CO2 is very different from all the other greenhouse gases because it's basically permanent. Once it's up in the atmosphere, it will last. It will stay there for centuries because the processes that pull CO2 out of the atmosphere are very slow. It's, you know, weathering of rocks on geologic timescales, a little bit of absorption in the oceans each year on net. And so it takes a very long time for CO2 to come out of the atmosphere. For human purposes, it's effectively permanent. And so if you care a lot about short-term impacts over the next 10 or 15 or 20 years, and you might care a lot about that if you think we're very close to certain irreversible tipping points in the climate system, then you care a lot more about methane than you do about CO2. Mm-hmm. But if you think that what really matters is the long-term you know, total concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere, because that's what's going to drive long-term equilibrium warming impacts, the flip side of methane not lasting very long is that we can, if, we, if we cut it, it will very quickly affect temperature. So it's a much more direct kind of thermostat knob to turn on than CO2. Um, and so, you know, it, it's closer to true that methane is a, a flow problem and CO2 is a stock problem, right? So it's about the cumulative amount of CO2 uh, versus about the annual emissions of methane. So if we cut methane, you know, say we, say we focus on CO2 now and then we cut methane in 10 or 15 years, right, that will have a very immediate impact on, you know, warming circa 2050. Whereas if we focus on methane now and let CO2 accumulate, that'll have a near-term impact, you know, in the 2030s and 40s, but it will potentially lead to greater warming in the long term. So it's a really complicated picture. Where you come out on the coal versus gas side of things really hinges a lot on whether you're looking at this near-term impact or this century-scale impact, and whether you're assuming that um, we are using very old leaky container ships uh, for for LNG shipment, or the more modern ones that don't let all that energy in that methane get wasted, they capture that methane on board and use it to power the engines and the cooling equipment that keeps the LNG liquid throughout the shipment. And so Howard's paper actually looks at that too. And, and shows that for modern tankers, the impact is much smaller than for the worst case scenario. This question about the 20-year versus 100-year horizon, this is like the actual disagreement at the heart of the Howarth paper. Is this right that basically like everyone knows that these LNG systems are somewhat leaky? It's just if you're looking at a 100-year timescale, you care less about those leaks because the methane that leaks out has degraded by the time you get to year 25 or year 50. And that warming potential that the the leaked methane you know contributed is kind of gone. But if you look at a 20-year timescale, you care a lot because of the greater role that methane plays, that leaky methane plays um, on short timescales. Like, is that right? I think that's one. I mean, I think there's sort of three things that you have to do in order to kind of come up with the numbers that that Howarth does. One is you have to focus on the 20-year potential. Two, you have to focus on kind of worst case leakage scenarios rather than maybe more optimistic scenarios or more you know forward-looking scenarios that reflect the fact that all of these new exports are going to be carried on modern ships that mm-hmm. don't allow that gas to be wasted. They consume it and, and use it as their fuel instead of diesel. Um, and so that really has a much more modest emissions impact. And then also that we're not going to be re- significantly reducing 
uh, methane emissions from the U.S. oil and gas supply chain, which is the current policy of the Biden administration, right, with the methane fee that was established by the Inflation Reduction Act and passed by Congress last session, and uh, methane regulations that were finalized at the EPA um, under the Biden administration in December, both of which should significantly reduce methane leaks across the U.S. side of that supply chain. So if you look at, you know, say 2030, when CP2 might be coming online, um, by that point, if those policies work as intended, U.S. leakage rates should be much lower than they are now. And the modern ships that are built to carry LNG from these new t- terminals that we're building now will avoid those significant shipment related leakage that gives you the sort of worst case picture. So that's that's one. Those are two big pieces, you know, the, the 20 year versus 100 year potential and your pessimism or optimism about leakage. There's a third piece, at, which I think we can get into a little bit later, which is sort of what scenarios you assume about, you know, what all of that U.S. Uh, LNG displaces on the global yeah. stage. And if part of that is displacing other people's natural gas production, which is very likely, then the leakage is true on both sides of the pond, right? There is leakage in Russia, which is actually huge, uh, one of the worst in the world. Um, There's leakage in other gas producing regions that we might be displacing. And if you count that on 20 year timescales, you know, it's also very large. And so the offsetting effect of displacing other production is also quite relevant. And I didn't see that taken into account in, in Howard's work. Whether you're a commercial business looking to reduce energy costs or a large-scale utility provider exploring DC block solutions to augment grid stability and security, the innovations and team at Core Power can truly unlock the potential of your energy strategy. Offering a unique, vertically integrated structure that aligns supply chain, manufacturing, installation, and asset management, Core Power ensures unmatched end-to-end control throughout your project, from design to deployment. With active production in Vermont and Coreplex, the manufacturing gigafactory coming online in 2025 in Arizona, Core Power actively drives the domestic energy transition through direct access to superior tech, clean energy manufacturing, and unmatched support for clean energy jobs and resilient, sustainable communities. Visit corepower.com, that's K-O-R-E power.com, to explore Core Power and discover how we can reach your clean energy goals together. Core Power, the future of clean energy is here. Since this news came out, I think there's been a lot of discussion online that says, uh, you know, about whether this is like necessarily the optimal choice, whether this is necessarily, you know, could we be using that gas to do something else? How should we be managing it? And I just want to make a point before we go on that this is literally what climate policy means. This is this is what climate, you know. There's a sense I see from some places, which is like, well, is is cutting off fossil fuel exports at this very arbitrary place, the optimal policy. And I just want to make the point that, like, number one, (laughs) we are not on an optimal policy pathway at all. And in the absence of a policy that I think both you and I think is very unlikely to pass, which is a globally normalized carbon price that's imposed evenly in all jurisdictions and 
is priced at a level that we can attain the you know 1.5 C or 1.6 C, whatever whatever end temperature goal we want to achieve. Um, in the yeah, absence, I'm going to go ahead and say that's that's <laughs> unlikely. <laughs> yes, in the absence of of a of a global carbon price that is uniformly enforced across all jurisdictions, we are going to make suboptimal decisions. And not only are we going to make suboptimal decisions, but we are going to stop investing in fossil in some in, in fossil fuels below what would be economically optimal if climate change didn't exist. That's literally what climate change means. And at the same time, we are going to invest above what would be economically optimal in all of these fossil fuels if you take climate change into account, because that is the signal failure of global climate policy is that we keep plowing money into fossil fuels and under-investing in alternatives and in scaling up alternatives. Um, we've we've underinvested in those things for at least 20 years. We could make, we could, that's a different show about whether we're still doing it or how much we're still doing it. I just want to get into this whole discussion by saying when we talk about whether we're fiddling knobs like in the right way or enough this way or enough that way, or whether we're taking all these things into account, we are never going to do this perfectly. And the whole point of climate change is that at some point you just have to stop investing in the fossil fuel system. Yeah. Economists call this the second best policy or third best policy. I just call it the real world. Yeah. Um, we're all just muddling through all the time. <laughs> and that's how we're going to, you know, make progress or not is, you know, whether we muddle through better or worse. So I agree. It's sort of, you know, it's theoretically helpful to think about what an economically ideal rationalized policy would be. Uh, but we're so far from that world that I think the question is, is this better than the alternative decision you could make about this particular thing right here. And hopefully that's the view that the Department of Energy is taking when they think about the public interest here. It's not like, well, could we have had some more ideal climate policy that meant we were doing something else over in this other part of the economy instead of doing this? Like that's a, you know, interesting conversation to have on Twitter, but maybe not the the core of the question that the DOE and the Biden administration are grappling with right here. Yeah. So I think at the heart of this whole thing including at the heart of this question of what's in the public interest, is this question of trade-offs. Because when we export liquid natural gas from the U.S., we're making a series of trade-offs about how the U.S. energy system should work and how American consumers should and Americans living among the energy infrastructure should interact with that energy system. And we're also making a series of trade-offs about how the world should power itself and what kind of fuels the world should use. And at the most basic level, there's this question of, you know, if you export liquefied natural gas and countries burn it instead of coal, that's good. And if you export liquefied natural gas and countries burn it instead of building renewables, that's bad. That is like the most basic calculation here. But it is actually very, very hard to know which of those two paths you're taking as you continue to increase LNG export capacity across the U.S. and as you as you export every additional ton of liquefied natural gas. Yeah, that's right. And actually, that's even more complicated because what you basically have are sort of uh, similar but counteracting and opposite effects on both sides of the trade equation. 
Um, so whatever's happening abroad in terms of you know natural gas displacing something there, we're having sort of the opposite effect here, which is that our natural gas prices go up and we're consuming less natural gas. So something is substituting for natural gas here. And is that coal or is that renewables? And that's sort of the same, the flip side of the coin. So let's sort of unpack that. And there's a really kind of you know useful, if simplistic framework for this that you would sort of learn in a micro econ 202 class or whatever, which is glo- global trade or trade of a fungible good between two different regions, right? And this is sort of the, the mm-hmm. underpinning of all the modern economy is, you know, one part of the world can produce something cheaper than another part of the world. And so it makes sense for the place that has the lower cost of supply to export it to the place with the higher cost of supply. You know, the exporting region wins because it gets to sell more of its product at a higher price. And the importing region wins because it gets to consume more of that product at a lower price than if it tried to produce it all domestically. So this is sort of the basic framework for trade. And economists would describe this using these concepts of elasticities of supply and demand, which describes basically what happens when you either change demand to prices or when you change prices to demand. So you can go both ways. And you know the basic concept is we're going to be exporting a lot more of our North American natural gas supplies. That effectively acts as a big demand increase in the North American context, right? In the US. Uh, you know, already we're exporting 10% of all gas production. Again, it could double or even triple with current permits that are already approved. All right. So what does economics tell us about what happens when demand increases? Well, if you want to produce more, it's going to come at a higher price. And so if we want to get more supply to meet that demand, prices in North America and the U.S. are going to go up for natural gas to induce some of that new supply. So now we're exporting more, but U.S. prices for gas are higher. So what does that do for consumption of natural gas? Well, if prices rise, you know, basic economics would tell us that consumers will want to consume less, all else equal. And so we're going to shift away from natural gas in the U.S. as a response to that higher price. And so and to, that, to just the, do the first thing here, right? So if we were to build more LNG domestically, LNG export terminals domestically, the like most likely outcome is actually we burn less natural gas in the US, right? That's right. We pay a higher price for gas and therefore yeah. we burn less of it here. And so the question is sort of, okay, what substitutes for that demand destruction? Or you know, why are we lowering our consumption? And there's sort of three ingredients to that. One is we could just use less of it, like say our... Um, major industries like you know uh, plastics that consume a lot of natural gas to make ethane and you know and other things ethylene for plastic they are just less competitive in the global economy so they consume less right and and that could be one form the other could be that we shift in the electricity sector where gas is often the sort of marginal supplier and and kind of swings back and forth depending on price we could substitute either coal or renewables in some combination to reduce our use of natural gas in the electricity sector And so some combination of those three things, lower consumption, greater renewable energy supply, and greater coal supply is what's going to drive down consumption of gas in the U.S. And obviously, you know, those three things have very different implications for U.S. emissions with coal often having been the direct substitute for gas and electricity markets. And, you know, we often see this very direct inverse relationship between gas, you know, and coal shares as, you know, the gas price goes up or down. Um, So in near term, at least, I would expect if gas prices go up in the U.S., we would see all else equal more coal fired power generation in the long term, maybe more renewables additions, because renewables are also more economically attractive, the higher the gas price is. And I see that a lot in the long term modeling that we do. And there's actually I want to unpack another piece of this, which is that because demand for gas declines, 
the increase in U.S. gas production or supply is not as large as the increase in exports. So that's important to keep in mind. So say, you know, we build this, uh, you know, facility, it's enough to consume 3% of U.S. natural gas supply today. That doesn't mean that U.S. natural gas supply goes up by 3% because some of that additional exports is going to come from the reduction in consumption. So freeing up current supply to, to export. And then some of it, a portion of it is going to come from increased uh, natural gas production in the US. But the sort of ratios there depend on what you assume about how responsive, relatively responsive supply and demand are to changes in prices. If you assume they're equally responsive, then it's a 50-50 split. Basically, half of the uh, re- half of the supply of exports comes from reducing consumption, and half of the new Im- exports comes from increasing supply. And you know, it could be some other ratio if you assume, as I think is fair, that supply tends to be more responsive to price than consumers. So that's interesting because if you care about leakage rates, right, that's important because sort of the best case scenario is the reduction in consumption comes from more renewables. And then the increase in supply is smaller than you thought and therefore has less methane leakage than you would otherwise have if you kind of count it one for one as all new exports are coming from new supply. Mm-hmm. So I can easily construct a story <laughs> here, you know, with very plausible assumptions where increasing LNG exports in the US is a net increase or decrease in US emissions depending on which of those scenarios you sort of concoct. And in either case, it kind of is on the order of plus or minus one percentage point of 2005 emissions if we're accounting for sort of all of the currently pending permits that could be affected by this decision. So it's, you know, it is a non-trivial amount, but it's not huge. And the kind of the US picture is ambiguous. So if we look at the rest of world equation, it's the exact opposite. We're going to increase supply on the global stage, right? So that's going to lower prices. So how do producers and consumers respond to lower prices? Well, the consumer side is going to increase its consumption. And some of that is going to be new energy consumption that wouldn't otherwise have been economic, right? People are just going to consume more energy for industry and, and heating and, and you know overall economic welfare. Some of that is also going to substitute for other energy supply that would have been provided. That could be renewables or coal in industry and, and electricity. Um, and again, whether you think that that LNG is export is displacing mm-hmm. coal or renewables is a huge factor in the global you know climate calculus. But it's also going to those lower prices are also going to disincentivize producers elsewhere in the world, whether it's in Russia or Algeria or Qatar, to reduce their production of natural gas too. And the leakage rates that go along with that will also fall, and so methane emissions overseas will fall, and that also offsets some of the impacts here. In other words, so and because yeah, it's the very US- ambiguous. And because the U.S. is about to regulate methane emissions, assuming the U.S. does regulate methane emissions, which basically means assuming a a Biden administration wins a second term, um, the U.S. is about to have basically cleaner natural gas than anywhere else, except anywhere but Qatar and the Middle East. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so if the effect of the of the U.S. exporting some natural gas, uh, exporting more LNG is that it reduces natural gas extraction in like Kazakhstan, which is an extremely leaky system, then that could be good from a leak basis. Like if what you what you care about is leaks on a 20 year time frame, you can actually construct a world where like the US should export a lot of LNG because we really care about reducing leaks globally. That's right. 
Yeah. And so on the global stage, I can, again, I can come up with a story where it's a net increase or decrease, you know, of a few tens of millions of tons of emissions. And so like the, the it's just a very ambiguous picture from a climate perspective. It's not quite as cut and dry as the simple equation would give you. Let me just ask a question you. right out that kind of, I think, gets at the discussion we just had, which is, do you think we can say with any confidence that cutting off U.S. LNG exports at a certain point uh, especially at the point that the Biden administration will have to at least use as a minimum, which is roughly double what our current export capacity is. Do we? Do you think we can say with any confidence that that is going to increase emissions globally? Or even do you think we can say with any confidence that it's going to decrease emissions globally? Like, is there any way to talk confidently about what this will do to greenhouse gas emissions globally as a result? I think if we look at just the individual facility question, like one, you know, incremental increase or decrease in U.S. exports, you know, again, I think you can, I don't think there's any confidence. I think you can easily say it's a slight benefit for the global climate. I think you can easily say it's a slight negative for the global climate. I think my prior is that it's probably relatively neutral. It's not mm -hmm. very good or very bad. And so that's, you know, where I sort of come out if you're just thinking about like a single facility. But I think the other perspective to keep in mind is what is sort of the aggregate supply that we're putting on the global stage mean? Yeah. And how consistent is that or not consistent with a global effort to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and confront climate change? And so remember, like ostensibly, the world all agreed at the Paris Climate Summit to try to reduce emissions and keep global warming and aggregate to less than well below uh, two degrees Celsius and try to target aspirationally one and a half degrees Celsius. If you believe that the world is committed to that goal, then there's a great paper on this exact question by uh, Shuting Yang, Sarah Hastings-Simon, and Arvind Ravikumar um, on you know whether or not we have enough carbon budget effectively left to export the LNG that we're planning. And what they conclude is that, you know, in the near term, like pre-2035, there's probably a reasonable case that LNG, where it substitutes for coal in, you know, say Pakistan or India or other LNG importing countries, is a net benefit for the global climate in the very short term. But they find, and I'll just quote the abstract here, that we find that the long-term planned LNG expansion is not compatible with Paris climate targets of 1.5 and 2 degrees Celsius. Here, the potential for emissions reductions from LNG through coal switching, coal to gas switching is limited by the fact that, it, to paraphrase, if we're going to be on that world, that two degree world, we'll have already phased out all of the coal or mm -hmm. stopped building new coal that could be displaced by LNG in the late, you know, late, later half of the 2030s. And so at that point, what we'll be doing as the U.S. is either stranding a bunch of assets if the world really is serious about that two degrees goal. Or we'll be basically committing to lock in more emissions than we can afford under a two degree world. Yeah. They also, though, say that we should keep in mind that, you know, we are not on track for a two degree world. So while the world is aspirationally pushing in that direction, the current trajectory is more like a three degree Celsius trajectory where it's likely that emerging economies will be depending on coal through the 2030s and 2040s. And in that case, they argue that U.S. LNG could be thought of as an insurance policy to make some incremental progress on emissions. And also, we should say, improve air quality in emerging economies where coal-fired generation and industry is a huge polluter that causes you know, significant loss of life and health effects. Then in that world, it, it sort of maybe is, is a, a net benefit. Um, 
So it's I come out of it as sort of like, what world do you think we're living in? Where do you think we're going? Do you act as if we're in the world that we sort of observe around us right now? Or do you act as if we're going to move onto the trajectory that we all say we, you know, the world has said we care about and, and a world where we are trying to desperately reduce emissions to a level that holds climate change below two degrees? It's actually kind of an unusual problem to encounter in climate policy, but one that I wonder if we're going to keep hitting as we get deeper and deeper into the transition, which is a lot of things you can do to fight climate change. They are both the things you should do anyway and insurance against a 3C or 4C world, insurance against a catastrophically warming world. What is interesting about this, about LNG export, is that it doesn't have that quality. <laughs> like, build a lot more solar. If you're If you're considering whether we should just, like, build you know, double, triple, quadruple U.S. current solar capacity? The answer is basically always yes. That's going to both cut off these extreme catastrophic tail risks that the US, that the world experiences extremely high levels of, you know, extremely catastrophic levels of global warming uh, in line with three degrees Celsius of warming, four degrees Celsius of warming. And also it's going to get us closer to accomplishing this 1.5C, 1.6C kind of optimal or the, the best we can get world, right? Yep. LNG does not work like that. There's a very unusual decision we have to make around it, which is, do you aim for the world we want to hit, which is 1.5C, 1.6C, you know, as close to our current level of warming as possible, get to net zero as soon as we can, a world that the UN, that the Paris Agreement, that all the countries globally have committed to and say they want to hit, but that a track that, at the same time, they're manifestly not on? Or do you want to say, well, actually, what we want to do is buy insurance against 3C. But it's a very weird insurance product because it is. it says like, well, you won't... Uh, you, you, you won't it's sort of an emission of failure. <laughs> yeah, right? exactly. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, 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 I'm trying to think of what, like, what the... It's, it's almost like <laughs> you buy... It, it it's almost like if you were to buy um a short a short <laughs> you're sort of yeah. shorting you're shorting the paris agreement effectively yeah. right? You're, right you're saying i don't believe that the world is going to get its act together and cut emissions fast enough to comply with our nominal targets and so i'm going to buy a short which is that we should export more lng it's like I, i've been try- it's like if there was a form of life insurance that required you to amputate a couple fingers or <laughs> like a forearm because it's like on the one hand or that said like well this is fine but the the way this life insurance works is that you can never be rich right so you know your family won't be destitute after you die but at the same time like well enjoy living your life you you know you are losing a forearm right <laughs> or you know <laughs> that's, that that's a grim analogy yeah. i mean it's kind of a grim analogy but i think it's yeah. like such an unusual decision it's really not a kind of decision we encounter I think a lot in other policy spaces. Yeah. And so I think the question for the U.S., right, if you're thinking about like, what do we do from a climate perspective is, you know, do we act in the world over the things that we have influence over? Right. Which is not Mm -hmm. what China and India and Pakistan decide to do. Really, we can indirectly influence that. But what we have direct influence over are decisions about U.S. energy production and our economy and U.S. policy. Right. And so the question is, do we use our U.S. policy decisions and the things that we have direct influence over to operate as if the world is going to align itself with our ostensible targets? 
and with the targets that we've set for the country itself, which is to cut you know greenhouse gas emissions rapidly and to get on track to net zero by 2050. Or do we say, you know what, we'll do that for our domestic economy. We'll make sure that we cut our own emissions. But as far as exports go, that's not our responsibility. That's up to the global stage and what they demand. And as long as the world is demanding more gas or oil or coal from the U.S., we'll supply it because that signifies that, you know, they're making decisions that aren't consistent with that world. And and we might as well supply it instead of somebody else. I think that's the calculus, right? Is, you know, which, which world do you operate in? And, you know, it's sort of, you know, you can easily make kind of the, again, the sort of like realist take, which is like, well, what's the point of giving up our exports, especially if they're marginally cleaner than other people's exports, if the demand is still out there and is going to be just satisfied by Russia or by somebody else. But it also is an admission that we just don't believe that the world is going to do what we are committed to doing. Um, and, And it also, you know, I think you have to ask yourself, like, would we have more influence over the rest of the world's actions if we actually acted as if we believed it? Right. Right. And not just over our domestic emissions, but over uh, our exports. This is particularly relevant for countries like Australia. I mean, they they talk about this all the time where, you know, their domestic emissions are like one tenth of the amount of emissions that go out the door or on the Mm -hmm. ships with their coal and LNG exports. So they're a huge net, you know, exporter of energy, you know, and and so it's like a much more central part of the debate in Australia is like, what is their responsibility as a global climate actor? You know, do they only have to meet their domestic climate goals or they also have to take some responsibility for their energy exports. We just really haven't been having that conversation at the same level in the U.S. And maybe that's exactly the point of, you know, forcing this issue right now. There's another side to that, though, which is let's say we we bet against the world's ability to hit its own climate targets. We build these export terminals. We we, we are like, well, we're going to try to hit our targets. But if you want to buy gas, that's fine. If the world then hits its targets, if the world keeps to its Paris Agreement goals, then we're the ones stuck with the stranded assets. Like that's true. Then suddenly there's all these rusty LNG terminals sitting around the Gulf Coast that didn't need to be built. And that's a hit to our economy. And so I think there's like, to some degree, the view where we say, well, we're just going to see what the, we're we're just going to let the world be the world and we're going to do the best we can. But if the world wants to buy our natural gas, then we're happy to sell it is actually not the like most selfish way of looking at this because if you were to fully, because you, you have to, think about whether there's actually going to be that demand there in order to figure out whether these even make sense as an investment. Not that, I mean that by the way, as a policy question, this isn't really a question about whether this make, these make sense as an investment, because that's presumably up to, because the only thing the government's been asked to do is figure out whether they're in the public interest. That's more a question about its investors. But like, still, I don't think we want all this rusty infrastructure that never got used sitting around on the Gulf Coast because we bet against the world and we bet wrong. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, essentially the question that the investors have to grapple with. And there's certainly a bear case and a bull case. I mean, this is why a lot of these terminals that have been approved don't yet have, you know, enough contracted, you know, demand to actually get get the banks lined up and go start construction. So I think there is really an open question about whether the demand will even be there for these projects in the end. Um, You know, the case that the, you know, sort of folks pushing back on the Biden administration would make right now is, you know, well, that's up to the private sector. You shouldn't be meddling with that. You know, if there's demand for it, there's demand for it. Let the private sector decide. And I think that's somewhat fair because if we aren't putting public money behind these projects the way we do for, you know, say for for clean energy projects that are getting, you know, subsidies from the U.S. for construction, then then that's it's uh, 
you know, more of a private sector question. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, at the local level, there is a lot of public support, yep. you know, packages here. There's basically tax abatements for all of these projects to encourage them to site in, you know, Louisiana instead of Texas or Mississippi or whatever. So the states sort of fight over it. And at the local level, um, one of the things I was really struck by in the reporting that Heatmap put up recently, talking to residents in, you know, near uh, CP2 and these other terminals, was just the, the level of tax abatements that have been provided for existing terminals mean that they're paying nothing into the local economy's uh, public coffers. They don't pay local local or state taxes, and so the communities that are bearing the toxic and you know and and polluting impacts of these facilities in their backyards are not getting any sort of public compensation for that. And you know, and that is an important question at the local level. And I think it's important to bring in this perspective too, because this is a whole other argument that <laughs> exists about these, a whole other way of even understanding this decision, which is that there's an entire set of activists who are engaged on this issue who. Are who care about the climate, but that is not actually their like main argument they make. What they argue is that these terminals go into our communities. They're people from the Gulf Coast. They argue these terminals go into our communities. They're extremely pollution intensive. They give our kids asthma. Um, our communities, because of how close they are to fossil fuel extraction and, and, and because of all these different sites smell like rotten eggs all the time. It smells bad. Cancer rates are very high. We don't want this infrastructure here. And so it's not in our public interest to have it. And when you factor in the tax abatements, that gets even worse, right? And and I think this is like a whole other argument against these LNG terminals that they are extremely pollution intensive in what I should say is a very biodiverse area of the country, a very, you know, people don't think about the Gulf Coast as being biodiverse, but by the way, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, some of the most biodiverse areas of the of the continental United States. Setting even aside biodiversity, it's bad to have a big cancerous, cancer, you know, carcinogenic, hyper polluting, smelly piece of infrastructure next to your town. And that's a whole other case against these terminals. And that's been a whole other nexus of how people have argued about them to the Biden administration. And I think that's like totally valid. I think what's interesting is that that actually suggests another kind of trade-off, right? Because if, and, and I don't want to be too academic about this, but like if a country in Sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia is deciding whether to burn coal or to burn imported U.S. liquid natural gas, and we don't make that liquid natural gas available, so they burn coal instead. That's like bad for all the people who live around that coal plant, right? Now they have asthma. Now they have heart disease. And they're they're interacting not with natural gas po- air pollution, which is bad, but cleaner than coal. They're interacting with coal, which is like the worst kind of, produces one of the worst kinds of, you know, power related air, air pollution that there is and, and is responsible for early deaths and stunted births and, and stunted growth and heart disease and lung disease worldwide and is the main driver of global air pollution problems. I think what's interesting is like, how do you balance if you're the Biden administration, these local concerns in the Gulf Coast around the local air pollution effects and local water pollution effects of L- of an LNG terminal with this trade-off that maybe that means people around the world have to encounter more coal pollution, conventional toxic air pollution from coal. Ultimately, I think you say, well, look, you know, folks in the Gulf Coast, those are Biden's constituents. Those are Americans. And so we should rank their desire to avoid pollution higher 
I think that lens is one that if we were to bring to other aspects of foreign policy or even other aspects of climate policy would be seen and depicted as really noxious ways to understand foreign policy and re- really a really bad way to think about the world and an unethical way to think about the world. Uh, and and that's just like another one of these trade-offs that's kind of inherent in how you, where you draw the line that I think is really, really difficult, very interesting. Yeah. And it all comes back to this question of the public interest. Who mm-hmm. is the public that yeah. you're interested in? <laughs> <laughs> right, and it's not clear in the statute what that means. Um, so, until the Supreme Court overthrows the Chevron Doctrine, which we'll talk about in another <laughs> podcast, um, you know the the current law of the land is that the agencies need to interpret what that means and figure out how to decide what's in the public interest. So we'll see what happens. But I think this does raise this big question: right? Who is the public that you're interested in here? If you're the Biden administration or the Department of Energy. And you know what we've seen here are that there are some pretty clear winners and losers domestically, right? The to sum up, the winners are gas producers and owners of LNG pipelines that ship to the terminals and the terminals that ship this gas overseas, right? Mm-hmm. Those are the winners. They get more money for their product, they sell more of their product, they make more, you know, more profit. And, you know, if you're just looking at sort of the the U.S. national accounts, right, our GDP, like that's on the positive side of the ledger. But of course, we should also keep in mind that there are particular people who benefit from that, right? It's a particular class and group of of people in the U.S. that exclusively benefit basically from that side of the equation. On the other side of the equation, and I think at the end of the day, this is the part that the Biden administration will lean into because it's the strongest case and the most broadly popular case against the terminals if they decide to you know, justify their decision here more aggressively. And that's that anyone in the US, any business or household or industry that consumes natural gas is going to be paying a higher price if we are going to export more to the world because that's a big increase in demand for US supply. And when demand goes up, prices go up. Even more concerning, I think, is that the U.S. will see much more volatile natural gas prices the more we link our markets to the global stage. We see this in the oil markets all the time, right? We are a net exporter of oil. We are physically energy secure, right? That long sought goal of energy independence, we've achieved it, right? If there was a conflict, a war that sort of broke out tomorrow, we could meet all of our domestic needs without any trouble. That said, when you know, a crazy dictator on the other side of the world, uh, thanks Vlad, tries, you know, decides to invade his neighbor, right, mm-hmm. in an unprovoked war mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and causes a huge global conflict and disruption of energy supplies. Prices at the pump in Princeton and, you know, Des Moines and Denver, like that goes up overnight because oil is a globally traded fungible commodity. And if demand in Europe spikes, people are willing to pay a huge amount because supply from Russia is disrupted. That's going to affect prices that we have to pay, even mm-hmm. for the gas that, and oil that we produce here in the United States. And that has not been the case historically, right? We've been a separate market for gas. While oil has been globally traded, we have been isolated in North America because gas is so much harder to ship around the world than oil is. Well, with LNG, it's, you know, it it costs more to ship, but it's just, it becomes easy to ship it as a liquid, just like oil. And if we are now, you know, going to be shipping something like a third of all of our supply overseas, 
if there's a conflict or a weather-related disaster that knocks out supply somewhere around the world or a big increase in demand, you know, because of a cold weather event or, you know, in the case of Japan after Fukushima, they shut down all their nuclear plants and had a huge increase in demand for LNG overnight. Like any of those kinds of global conflicts or crises that are totally out of our control will immediately increase natural gas prices across the United States. Not by as much as the global price. There's always going to be a wedge between the two because of shipping costs, but it will drive up prices. And that's exactly what we saw in 2022 when prices in the US tripled because of the demand for uh, LNG uh, in Europe and, and Asia and elsewhere. So like, that's the like the clear loser side, I think, is like households trying to heat themselves in the winter and in a year when there's some conflict on the other side of the world that drives up their heating prices they have no control over. And any U.S. industries that depend on cheap gas to be globally competitive and might lose market share, you know, might have people lay off people, you know, might uh, not contribute right. as much to our economy uh, and, on that side of the ledger. And this is not like a minor minor consideration either, right? Like this is actually a significant piece of macroeconomic policy making. This would have a major effect on the US macro economy because cheap natural gas and cheap electricity are not like rounding errors on how the current US economy is structured. Over the past decade and a half, they have become major traits of the US economy and major determinants of US global competitiveness. And that's not to say, by the way, that like it should be cheap forever. I think what's going to happen over time is that like we replace that cheap US natural cheap natural gas as an input into electricity with cheap renewables and cheap zero carbon electricity. But increasing US gas natural gas costs and increasing U.S. electricity costs is not a minor thing. That is actually a very significant piece of uh, that would that would be a very significant piece of macroeconomic policymaking and would matter quite a bit to a lot of industries that have nothing to do with fossil fuels. That's right. And I should say, like, you know, this was a question that the Obama administration looked at, I think, in circa 20, you know, 2016 or 2014, that was looked at under the Trump administration. So, like, they have done these analyses in the past. And the conclusion, you know, which is sort of basic economics, is like, on net, there are gains from trade here to be had, mm -hmm. you know, because we're going to be selling our producing more gas and selling it at a higher price and earning more profits for gas producers that offsets these other negative impacts. But I think, again, it raises the question of like, who is the public that you care about? Do you just care about the aggregate GDP or do you care about more, you know, certainly about certain constituents or industries more than others? Right. Do you right. care that about household costs more than you care about, you know, the profits of, you know, LNG uh, companies or or, you know, or or stockholders in you know, gas producers? That's just a that's just like a subjective question. Right. There's no objective answer there. There are winners and losers in every trade decision on both sides of the ledger, right? Both in the importing and exporting countries. Um, and, and, and so- And you care about commodity exports or high-end manufacturing exports. I mean, I, I don't yes, mean to be, but exactly. like if you're, no, if you're it, sending natural gas abroad, that's pushing up dollar price. I mean, it's just like, it, it, it there's a lot here. Else. Yeah, yeah <laughs> maybe exactly. you might want to pause and think about it. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of where I come out after yeah. after spending a week thinking about it myself. Is like, yeah, there's a lot to unpack here, and things are changing rapidly, right? The global geopolitical situation is not at all the same as it was six years ago or four years ago. The climate situation is not really the same as it was, you know, six years ago or four years ago. Um, and you know the U.S. economy is shifting in important ways too. Mm -hmm. So maybe you want to pause and think about how far you want to go here.
that I think is sort of the best case for for the for the Biden administration's decision. It's just like, whoa, this is moving real fast. Let's slow down and think about all of the myriad implications of this decision on consumers, on local populations in Louisiana, on you know globally competitive businesses and industries that depend on cheap uh, gas and electricity, on uh, our role in the global economy and geopolitics and security as a big exporter of LNG. I mean, these are all relevant pieces of the equation. Um, and there isn't really a clear-cut answer here. This episode of Shift Key is brought to you by Advanced Energy United. Clean energy is ready now, but our laws are not. Advanced Energy United is changing that. Outdated rules and regulations are preventing companies from providing the clean energy solutions consumers want. Advanced Energy United is on a mission to achieve 100% clean energy in America. They're working to reduce policy roadblocks in states across the country and on Capitol Hill. Now, Advanced Energy United represents the businesses creating and providing all forms of clean, efficient, and reliable energy and transportation solutions. And by working to knock down the biggest policy barriers facing those solutions, Advanced Energy United and its members are creating better opportunities for all. Learn more at advancedenergyunited.org slash heatmap. That is advancedenergyunited.org slash heatmap. Now back to the show. All right, Rob. So what has you excited this week? What is your upshift for the week? I think my upshift for the week is unusually vehicle related. And it is that the EIA came out with uh, a finding this week that hybrids, plug-in hybrids, and battery electric vehicles were 16.3% of new car sales last year. That's obviously not where we need to be, but they, it re represents significant growth from last year, or from rather from 2022 when hybrids, plug-in hybrids, and, and battery vehicles were 12.9% of sales. Um, it continues to grow. I think two interesting things is that hybrids and fully electric vehicles are kind of growing at, at roughly the same rate. Uh, battery electric may be catching up. Um, it's good news for a lot of reasons. I mean, is it does it reflect that the battery electric market is where we would want it to be? Not necessarily, but I think it's good news because... Um, it shows that especially as tailpipe regulations, as, as the EPA regulates, uh, prepares to regulate uh, greenhouse gas emissions from light duty vehicles, from light duty cars and trucks, that there's a lot of potential there to increase the BEV and hybrid share. And especially the, the consumers are recognizing that like, well, if they're not ready to buy an electric vehicle yet, they should buy a hybrid, which is something that a lot of consumers I know who bought new cars recently have like gone through. Yeah, I think it's it's actually what was surprising there was the hybrid portion of that picture. Mm -hmm. I think we were all expecting battery electric sales to increase, and you know the question is how much. Um, yeah, I think that it reached about just pure battery electric vehicles uh, topped seven percent of all U.S. sales. But what was surprising is the hybrid share, which was basically flat mm. for the last several years, at around five percent of the market, soared to over seven and a half percent of the market, over a million, one point one million. A hybrid sold in 2023, about exactly the same amount of total vehicles as uh, battery electric vehicles. 
So there's been some reporting that like, you know, people are choosing hybrids as EV demand slows, but that's actually not the case. It's that instead of just EVs growing, we had EVs growing at a 50% share annual you know, increase. And all of a sudden hybrids are back in the game uh, mm-hmm. with the release of a lot of new models that don't really cost any more than the conventional versions. It almost makes me wonder why we even sell the conventional versions of some of these cars. But I recently saw that the Hyundai Tucson hybrid cost about $600 more than the equivalent trim of the internal combustion version. And it's just a better car. Like it's got 50% better fuel economy. It's faster. It's got more horsepower. It's quieter when you're driving around the city. Like why do they even sell the other one? Mm -hmm. And so that's sort of why I think we're seeing hybrid sales go up is it's just, if you're going to buy an internal combustion engine car, the better internal combustion engine car, it happens to be a hybrid now and it doesn't cost, you know, an arm and a leg more. And it's, it pays itself back in just a matter of, you know, months in fuel costs. Jesse, what's your upshift for the week? So my upshift is maybe on a little more personal note. <clears throat> I just began a new teaching semester here at Princeton, and I'm teaching my favorite class, which is an introduction to the electricity sector. We cover engineering, economics, and regulation, and it's a really fun class. This is the fifth year I've been teaching it here at Princeton. I taught, helped teach it with my advisor at MIT for several years and kind of adapted it uh, when I got here to Princeton, and it's really running nice and smoothly now, right? The fifth, fifth time's a charm, right? <laughs> and so this year, it's been fun. It's running smoothly. We have a big uh, you know, big, excited class. And it, what I really love about the class is the mix of students in it. We have about half undergraduates and half graduate students. And, you know, maybe half of the students are from engineering disciplines, but it really spans the entire university. We've got, you know, engineering students that are interested in the electricity sector. We've got policy students from the School of Public and International Affairs. We have science and humanities and economics and political science students. And so it's just a really interesting mix. And I think it reflects just how inherently interdisciplinary and also inherently important the electricity sector is. So, you know, I I always find it exciting to see students from all these different backgrounds deciding they want to spend a semester with me learning about electricity regulation <laughs> and thermodynamics and microeconomics principles. So sweet. it's going to be a fun one. Yeah, that's 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 sweet. Uh, what's your downshift? So my downshift was news that I read this week. It was broken by The Guardian that the U.S. oil lobby, the American Petroleum Institute, just took out like an eight-figure media buy to spread the idea that fossil fuels are vital to global energy security, not you know coincidental timing around the debates over LNG. So we can expect the airwaves and the you know the the paid advertising in the newspaper and everything to just be flooded with ads making the case that because the world is in crisis and conflict and there's a war in the Middle East and there's war in you know Ukraine that that makes U.S. oil and gas supply so much more important for the global security situation. And I you know obviously that's they're going to make the most compelling case they can for their industry. That's their job. But I think the thing that makes me most angry or frustrated about this, the reason it's my downshift, is that it ignores the part of the story where the U.S. is totally vulnerable to these conflicts too, right? We talked about that earlier, that you know, when there's a war, say, you know, Houthis interdict trade through the, the Suez Canal and, you know, and that disrupts all kinds of oil shipments from the Middle East to Europe. Like that isn't just contained in Europe, that spills over and affects the price of the pump and the cost of heating homes right here in the U.S. immediately. And so this idea that, you know, the oil and gas industry is so good for security, it may be true for sort of global geopolitics and like helping our allies overseas, but it doesn't mean that the U.S. economy is secure by any means. We are totally vulnerable to these conflicts around the world, and we will be until we are, until we sever our reliance on globally traded commodities like oil and LNG. Um, And the only way to do that, of course, is to accelerate 
the clean energy transition to accelerate the growth of EVs and of heat pumps and renewable energy that are capital investments. Once you make them, you're no longer dependent on what happens on the other side of the world. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they're not running the campaign, the ad campaign making that point. So well, uh, maybe I think somebody else it, needs to. In some ways, I think it, uh, you could say that uh, the, I'm not going to claim that that's an upshift, but I do think that this is kind of interesting in the light of the LNG decision, because my understanding is that that campaign was locked in before the LNG decision was even made. And the, uh, the Biden administration, I have to say, while um, has presided over, of course, the the U.S. is now drilling more oil and natural gas than it ever has before in, in not only U.S. history, but the U.S. is drilling more oil and natural gas than any country ever before has yeah, we're, in history. Yeah, we're now the Saudi Arabia of oil. <laughs> well, without the ability to control it, but yeah. But I think at the same time, what this shows is that like the oil industry isn't going to give it credit for that either. You know, Chevron uh, just uh, this week announced that it was going to expand capacity again this year. And I think that there is this kind of like real politic way of looking at this, which is like, look, if the oil and gas industry is going to run these giant ad campaigns against Democratic administrations, no matter what Democratic officials actually do, then by all means, Democratic administrations should like try to slow the growth of those industries. I mean, that's a very, very like sociopathic way of looking at it. But like if there is this very tough question that's like, should the U.S. do this? Who would it be bad for? Who would it be good for? And the primary beneficiaries of such a policy would be the fossil fuel industry itself and not U.S. consumers. Then why should Biden not pause LNG exports, right? My downshift for the week, speaking of capital goods, speaking of big investments, was that Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, said really made it seem like the Fed isn't going to cut rates in March, which is actually quite worrying me. At this point, interest rates are at their highest point in more than 20 years. That's really decreasing investment in renewables and in the kind of big clean electricity and clean energy investments that we need to fight climate change. It and also makes uh, EVs more expensive to lease. It makes and, EVs more expensive. Buy, yeah. yeah. It's just bad for the transition all around. I understand the Fed's desire to make sure that it finishes fighting inflation, but I think Inflation has been pretty much under control for the past six months. And I'm worried that although we have this very booming economy right now, that like it's a little unstable and keeping rates too high could kill it. And I'm also just worried that we're not that that a lot of great investments and a lot of great investment that's already happened from American companies and in technologies and, and infrastructure that could be built here in the U.S. Uh, is not going to happen or those tech companies are going to die because capital is so expensive right now. So that's my downshift for the week. You heard it here, folks. Robinson Meyer for uh, <laughs> launching his campaign for Fed chair. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, you got I, my yeah. vote. Okay. Well, this has been great. And Jesse, I'll see you here next week. And um, thanks so much. This was fun. Okay. That's a wrap. Shift Key is a production of Heatmap News. The podcast was edited by Jillian Goodman. Our editor-in-chief is Nico Loricella. Multimedia editing and audio engineering by Jacob Lambert and Nick Woodbury. Our music is by Adam Cromwell. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.